Chicago folks. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you for coming this weekend. We are in, well, it's Evanston, Illinois. Yeah. But uh, we're going to do a Q&A. We've curated some questions, curated questions. Uh, we're going to get into those the same way we normally do with a laptop. Okay, uh, let's go to the first question. How do you deal with people with very low self-efficacy? Do you get to a point where you've dismissed a patient because they're unwilling to change this? Dr. Baraki. Um, so <clears throat> this is a good question because a lot of people, this is an issue that a lot of people have uh, in terms of having low self-efficacy and a lot of it has to do with social, cultural understandings of health and health promotion and health care. Uh, these are people who end up being, they, they end up utilizing a lot of health care in general. Um, for almost any symptom that they have, they may end up making an appointment or coming in or going to the ER or the hospital or something like that. And, and it's out of their own concern of what does this mean and I need uh, treatment for this or I need, you know, experiencing a symptom means something is wrong and that means that something needs to be fixed. Um, that is something that is very difficult to, uh, to assess or manage or kind of uh, work on, so to speak, in that particular setting, in that acute setting. Like if they come to the hospital, that's not the place or the time to do that, uh, mainly because they're so worried about what, they're, you know, what they came in for. Um, but for somebody who has a longer-term relationship with this individual, be it a primary care doctor or you know, a coach or if it's a relative or a friend or something like that, um, I think the main thing that I would try to do is try, like we do with behavior change in general, is try to, to educate, try to identify barriers, and try to knock down those barriers as much as possible. In other words, you try to get them a win with something. And once you get a win with something that they've maybe successfully been able to self-manage, the first time they're able to work through their own back tweak, for example, that's a win. And then that can start to build some positive momentum for these people because their entire cultural understanding, their, you know, the way they've been taught about this stuff to date has revolved around needing other people to fix them. And if you can kind of violate that expectation, that expectancy violation is a principle we use when we're treating issues related to pain. If you can violate that expectation once, you might be able to break the cycle and start to build some positive momentum and get some wins for the individual. Um, so I think identifying barriers, breaking them down, educating, and then getting your first win is a big part uh, a big part of this process and trying to build momentum from there. I have never dismissed a patient because they're unwilling to change this because if they are coming in because they feel they need help, uh, that would be profoundly unethical to say, well, you're unwilling to help yourself get out of here. Um, so I have a certain you know, ethical duty to that individual. Obviously, I might feel that this individual may be able to manage certain things on their own if provided the skills and the resources and the tools and the education. That's something that ends up being a, a long-term process. But no, I have never and probably will never uh, dismiss somebody or, or, or refuse to uh, work with somebody on that basis alone. Yeah, not a patient. I, and actually, I don't think I've done that to a client. Like, There's certainly been clients that I probably sh should have adjusted our, co our coaching client relationship early on, uh, or earlier on so that we could have a more productive relationship. Uh, that being said, like, how do, do I deal people, how do I deal with people with very low self-efficacy? So a lot of that stuff goes back to the behavioral change lecture. We talk about identifying where somebody is on that trans-theoretical model of behavioral change and providing the right resources to them at that time. So again, most people with low self-efficacy, it, it can stem from a wide variety of different deficiencies. So if somebody's in that pre-contemplation state, they might lack the actual insight into, well, here's why this is a problem. Right, and, and so again, providing education at that point may be very useful. If somebody's like, yeah, I know that it's a problem, I just don't 
feel like I have the actual practical tools and skills to make an action plan. It's like, again, you're just addressing, meeting people where they're at and addressing what they need at the time. I, I don't know that I've had anybody that I've been working with for a substantial period of time having that long-term relationship that's just been like, nope, you're still bad, still terrible. Yeah. And, uh, Although yeah. we have a selected population if they come oh, to us for this, you know, in, a, in a sense they're selected for people who are motivated yeah. enough to buy into this, some of this stuff. 100%, like Australian. Uh, the main thing is though you can't, I guess you're putting undue, undue pressure on yourself if you're trying to fix this in five minutes, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Or one visit, can't do it. It's not, not possible. So I think if that's your expectation, then probably unlikely. Yeah. All right. Uh, question number two. I have many premenopausal and menopausal athletes in my gym. Uh, this article was sent to me. It's an article from, what was that, JCI? Yeah, Greensdale, 20, Greendale 2019 for yep. people who end up wanting to look it up. But. Yep. I believe it essentially states that in the premenopausal stage, lean body mass decreases and body fat increases and then uh, sticks during menopause. Yep. In the, is this article supported by data? What would you suggest to help people keep as much lean body mass as women age? So yeah, that's definitely the general trend that, that is reported in the data, suggesting that people who are either perimenopausal, like they're very close to going through menopause or they've gone through menopause, will lose lean body mass and gain fat mass and that it is very difficult to get rid of. But these are untrained individuals, thing one. Thing two, you would expect due to the relative anabolic nature of testosterone and now that they've lost a significant amount of estrogen that they would be in a better position to, produce, to put on lean body mass. But that is not in fact the case. There are other factors at play, including just increasing age in general, which is anabolic resistant uh, type of uh, situation. So. Yeah, right now, as far as the actual resistance training data in uh, older uh, and postmenopausal women suggests that they can, in fact, lose body fat and put on lean body mass. And there's scores of weight loss data in, in this population, too. So how would you, as a gym owner, as a coach, as a, a healthcare professional, counsel somebody um, on you know, increasing lean body mass and decreasing fat mass? Well, it's not different what you would do for somebody who's not perimenopausal or postmenopausal, it would be the same. It'd be calorie restriction for fat loss. It would be engaging in regular resistance training with progressive overload, you know, uh, and and meeting the, at least the physical activity guideline minimums, right? And being going up over time because there's this dose-response relationship between training volume, strength, and hypertrophy, uh, and uh, preventing of prevention of weight regain, particularly in folks who lose weight. So. I don't know that I would change, and just like we said in the female endocrinology uh, lecture, I don't know that I would change any of my management based on the fact that somebody's perimenopausal or postmenopausal, other than like noting it, noted, and then moving forward. So, and this article, you imagine if you read that and you were postmenopausal, or like getting close, not you. Perry. Well, yeah, and you're like, no, I'm gonna lose all my gains. Yeah. I guess yeah, people I can respond to it in two different ways. Sure. It's like yeah, start training a bunch. Or? I agree. Most of this is in untrained people, and that is the that is the trend. And of course, the important thing to remember is that when we use the term lean body mass, that also includes bone. Yep. And so in this situation, that perimenopausal transition is actually a you know, a, a good amount of it actually occurs due to a decrease in bone mass, particularly in untrained individuals. The paper they sent actually intelligently, they did not include bone mass changes in their analysis that showed some decrease in lean body mass attributable to things like muscle mass, water, things like that, an increase in body fat. But again, those changes can be attenuated or minimized by actively training throughout that period. And I agree, on the other side of the transition, 
we still don't view that as a quote-unquote special population in the sense that they need some sort of special training approach. We still approach them and treat them, you know, from a training or a programming standpoint similar to... Yep. Yeah. All right, moving on. Question number three. Assuming a person is taking in adequate fiber, adequate servings of fruits and vegetables, and is eating within maintenance calories, is there any reason to limit the intake of simple sugars, added or otherwise? What would be otherwise? Added or included in the food. Yeah, yeah. right. Or otherwise. Sure. Uh, within the confines of maintenance calories. Uh, my response to this is it depends because the there's a handful of medical conditions that have like a fairly tight relationship with total sugar intake and worsening of that particular disease. Hypertriglyceridemia is one of them. Um, I still think though if you're maintaining weight and you're an appropriate body weight and body fat level and you're getting in the recommended amount of fiber and you're getting in, you're one of the 20, uh, you're part of the 25% of Americans who are meeting their uh, fruit and vegetable intake goals per day, which puts you in rarefied air, uh, that you're probably okay. Right, and I don't think I can make a strong argument to the contrary. Um, that being said, I think that if you need to lose weight, you know, so this would take this out of the context of maintenance calories, then I think uh, a reducing uh, added sugars and simple sugars would be a good idea. And the other thing I'll say is most of the time added sugars, particularly in the American diet, Western diets, and, and particularly in America, it's from sugar-sweetened beverages. And the problem is with liquid calories, we don't really compensate very well, so if you take in 300 calories of liquid beverage, you're unlikely to compensate, uh, if, it has, if it's a sugar-sweetened beverage, you're unlikely to compensate by eating less whole foods later on. We're just not, not very uh, well set up to do that. So I think in a weight loss situation, I feel much more strongly about uh, people avoiding uh, sugar uh, in the form of sugar-sweetened beverages. That's and like sugar. one of the first targets I look at in a weight loss situation for, for some people from a dietary change standpoint. Yeah. But like in this, in this question, it's not a strange like question. It'd be like you asking me, like Jordan, look, man, I'm counting my macros now. You finally convinced me to count my macros, and I'm wondering, like, what is the safe upper limit of sugar intake? And I'd be like, you're fine, dude. Just <laughs> do whatever. Hit your macros. Hit your fiber intake, right? And make sure that you're getting your vegetables and fruit servings in. It all turns to glucose or some sort of simple sugar anyway in the gut. So, yeah. Yeah, it's all carbon. Today's biochemistry <laughs> All right. Question number four. Once a patient has lost 10% of their body weight, what is the value of further weight loss? Context, I recently lost about 30 pounds. BMI went from 35 to 31. Should I be more aggressive about further weight loss? That's a good question. Um, and so the, if you check out the uh, American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists obesity guidelines, which I, again, think are like the best obesity guidelines we have that are published, and they're free, which is neat. Um, there are some health, uh, conditions that are obesity-related health conditions that do respond to further weight loss. So the range that they'll advise is between 5 to 15% uh, or even greater. And so there's, again, some health conditions that have this dose-response relationship to weight loss and health improvement. So it really depends on what your health status is right now. If you still are suffering uh, or a burden of disease related to uh, carrying too much fat mass, then I would encourage further Probably it's probably worth pushing on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. On the other hand, if you have no medical problems, your waist circumference is within check, you're, very a you're active, meeting the, again, physical activity guidelines uh, minimums, then I don't know that I can make a case for further weight loss unless you have significant risk factors. Or if you just want to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if you want to. So people are like, should I get abs? I'm like, I don't know if you want to. <laughs> I, I don't care. <laughs> that's yep. what Austin's text that I wake up to. Should I get it? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you guys know that's a lie. 
I, can't, I can only do so many hypothetical Austin jokes. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay, question number five. Do the doctors have any experience or data to share re-acute neurovascular events or injuries from training? For context, I've seen a handful of patients with concern for sentinel aneurysmal hemorrhages or reversible vasoconstriction syndrome. How would you counsel these patients? I think I can narrow down where this question came from in our audience. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, since the neurologists. Since we have uh, a neurostroke specialist here. Uh, so, yeah, risks of resistance training is an excellent question, and it's a topic we've actually been considering uh, uh, adding a new lecture to the seminar uh, on that particular topic. Uh, we just have to figure out where it's going to go. Yeah, it turns out we're uh, short on time here. If you didn't notice. Uh, so when we uh, wrote the initial up-to-date article, um, you know, of course, they wanted us to include a section there on risks of resistance training. And the biggest risk that they were concerned about us, uh, risks that they wanted us to talk about, were cardiovascular risk with resistance training, musculoskeletal risk uh, with resistance training were like the big ones. Um, and so we didn't actually, they didn't actually ask us to do stuff uh, with respect to neurovascular stuff like stroke, aneurysmal hemorrhage, um, or RVCS, which I've only seen a couple times. I'm sure you see it much more, much more than I do. But so while Jordan was lecturing, I actually uh, dug in a little bit to see what I could find. And there's actually, not surprisingly, very little on this with respect to resistance training in particular and risk of uh, aneurysmal hemorrhage and stroke. I did find one um, one paper from Fan and colleagues from 2000, published in British Journal of Sports Medicine, and the title was Physical Activity and Subarachnoid Hemorrhage: A Population-Based Case Control Study. And so in that paper, they said four of the 140 49 uh, subarachnoid hemorrhages in that paper, 2.7% were associated with vigorous activity. Um, they said that uh, they said that after their case control analysis, the risk of subarachnoid hemorrhages increased during vigorous physical activity. However, they said that higher levels of long-term regular physical activity over the past year were associated with a lower but not statistically significant risk of subarachnoid hemorrhage. So they weren't able to show that chronic levels of training were protective against risk of hemorrhagic stroke, but that during, probably, and shortly after the episode of vigorous activity, your risk goes up by some non-zero amount. And that's the reason I brought up the up-to-date articles, because that's exactly what we ended up finding in the cardiovascular risk literature, in the sense that when you do this sort of training, you are accepting some degree of increased risk of things like sudden cardiac death. Every time one of us comes to train or do anything, there is some non-zero increase in risk for, for something like sudden cardiac death. They said that in the absence of, you know, like unstable chest pain symptoms, uh, people who either have stable coronary disease or no known coronary disease, that the risks of resistance-based exercise and vigorous phys physical activity in general, vigorous in this context being defined as greater than six METs, which is like jogging, running, not that vigorous really, um, the, the, the benefits uh, significantly outweigh the risks. And that's kind of what I would come back to here is suggesting that, you know, uh, the benefits of exercise likely outweigh this risk. And of course, you are among these few people out there who end up seeing these complications, which is unfortunate. I don't think that we can necessarily advise widespread population-based screening for something like this or intervention upon that for reasons we discussed for everybody else in our screening podcast. We went into that in, in detail. So we are accepting some degree of risk every time we do anything, pretty much, right? And so just like everything else, there's trade-offs, like Tom was saying all weekend. So from this standpoint, based on the little data we have, most of which is not based in resistance training, we can 
uh, attempt to generalize and say that the benefits of this stuff likely outweigh the risks. And that's probably the, be the, the only way that I would be able to frame it when counseling a patient on this is, you know, the risks of training, which are likely present and non-zero compared to the risks of not training. Um, and of course, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that kind of dichotomy, right? So patients may say, well, can I just do a lower intensity type of exercise instead? <laughs> I'm like, well, you could. I can't tell you based on evidence that that is actually reducing your risk any further. I don't know um, if that would make you feel safer or less afraid. Because if I know that I know that if somebody told me that I had you know an aneurysm in my brain and that I was at increased risk of something terrible happening with vigorous activity, that would probably be on my mind when I went to go you know pull seven hundred, right? I see what you yes, yes. <laughs> so there is some risk. You know the overall data suggests that the benefits likely outweigh the risks, but of course that is that. That is hard to convey to an individual. They're like, but I'm not the population. I'm an individual. What is my risk? And I'm like, wish I could tell you. There's probably so many people that we train who have undiagnosed aneurysms in their brain, well, and they go their whole life, and they do fine, or they, and they end up dying of something else, or maybe they, one day they do die of that. And so um, that's probably the best we can do in the same way that that's the best we can do from a cardiovascular risk standpoint. There was a 2017 meta-analysis we cited in the up-to-date article uh, where they were saying that like these specific risks with respect to resistance training from a cardiovascular standpoint are likely underreported and mostly not specific to resistance training. So it's like, it's very hard to draw confident conclusions. And so the best we can hope to do is present some of this information to people and say, yeah, there's a risk. There's a risk to not doing this as well. Best, you know, uh, data we can, we have right now, best we can generalize. We can say that it's probably, you're probably better off if you train than if you don't, but yep, there's some risk. Sorry. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's tough. The overall, yeah, the overall risk from resistance training from like a, like a, in, a musculoskeletal injury standpoint for all types of resistance training, so like CrossFit, Strongman, Highland Games, powerlifting, bodybuilding, Olympic weightlifting is very, very low. It's average two to four injuries per year per athlete or 0.5 to two injuries per thousand participation hours, which is nearly the same as walking, okay, which is 0.3 to one and a half injuries per thousand participation hours in walking. If you add gardening into the mix, they nearly completely overlap. So watch out for that garden, bro. Like the musculoskeletal injury stuff is really low, but when we did our screening podcast, I looked up resistance training injuries, a resistance training induced cardiovascular events. So like, for, and this, uh, for, for men, for instance, it's one in every like one and a half million individuals with acute risk of having a cardiovascular event. And women, it's one in every 34 a million individuals, something like that. But the overall paper and, the, and then the, study, the studies that are based off of suggest, yes, this risk is in the acute, like early stage. Like you're, you've never trained before. This is an un, un uh, uh, you're, you're not accommodated to this level of stress. So yes, there's a non-zero risk to begin with, but the chronic benefits of exercise are you know, well-established. And may reduce that risk over exactly, time. Exactly, exactly. It's just that acute sort of risk. The second part of this is as far as like screening goes, so like what sort of screening is recommended in exercise. So if you're a personal trainer, if you're a healthcare professional, and you're like, well, can this person train? So on the client, like the, the patient level or client level, what they can do is take the pre-participation activity 
uh, uh, screener, the PAR-Q, PPAR-Q from ACSM that's freely available. And if there's a positive screen in there, they get referred, they should be referred to a either sports medicine professional or a doctor who's familiar with it. There's a PAR-Med-X, which sounds awesome. <laughs> and there are specific PAR-Med-Xs for different healthcare conditions like cardiovascular disease, pregnancy, things of that nature where, that help guide the clinician. So those are the actual like takeaways if you're personal trainer, your coach, and you're like, dude, I don't know what all this stroke stuff is about, <laughs> so we'll just, <laughs> I'll just pretend that I'm listening. Yeah. That's, uh, that would be the take home from that. Okay. Oh, is this the question? This is the question. What is the current evidence of reduction in knee pain from gel injections? But you mean like hair gel? No, this is the hyaluronic acid ah, HA. All right. or visco supplementation. Did I as tell it's you my called? first coach that I ever had? So this guy, he was in my brother's PA class. He's okay. a little bit of a nut. You know, I think you know who this is, but I don't want to drop names. Okay, because the tubes. This guy was like, "Yeah, I've been injecting hyaluronic acid into my hip." I was like, "You wait, you've been injecting yourself?" He goes, "Well, yeah, I just want to see if it works." And I was like, "What?" <laughs> He did not have a good outcome from that, but I think that mirrors the actual evidence on this overall in the uh, Yeah, in, like actually, I don't, mm. <laughs> bite your tongue. I mean, people do hip injections of like the, the trochanteric bursa and stuff like that, but like an intra-articular hip injection I know, is dude. challenging enough to access without like There's some things. X-ray guidance or something. He's doing this to himself. Anyway, okay. So hyaluronic acid is this. It is a uh, it is a molecule that is used as part of the synthesis of uh, collagen. It's involved in uh, collagen synthesis and some of the other connective tissues in the knee. Not collagen, cartilage. Excuse me, I said that wrong. Um, and so the thinking was, oh, this is a part, a building block for cartilage. If we inject this building block into the knee, the knee will take it up and know what to do with it and things will get better. Um, and so it's been tried. It's actually quite expensive. People get this Synvisc injection. Uh, usually it's a series of like three injections over a course of a few weeks. And um, so to quote, the evidence from large, double-blinded, and high-quality trials indicates that intraarticular hyaluronic acid has a small, clinically irrelevant benefit over intraarticular placebo. So of course, I've seen lots of patients who say, yeah, they get the gel injections once a year or something like that, and it makes their knees feel great, and they do wonderful. Um, all the high quality, you know, adequately controlled evidence that we have on this suggests that those benefits that they receive are contextual effects, placebo effects, meaning, yeah. meaning responses, like I described in the placebo lecture, where you know, they're sitting there, they have these achy knees, and the doctor who has you know, counseled them and told them about this material, how it's part of cartilage and how their knee is bone on bone and this is gonna help to restore the lubrication and help their knee move nice and smoothly. Preps them, sterilizes their knee and they get to watch this needle go in their knee and this syringe full of this fluid that they know is gonna make their knee move nice and smooth. They get their oil change for their knee, gets injected slowly into their knee space and like, oh, I can't wait for that to be in there. Afterwards, they're moving around. They're like, yeah, that feels awesome, right? And then you do the same uh, the same uh, procedure with a placebo injection, weirdly enough, they get the same response. So uh, I do not recommend people get hyaluronic acid injections. I think the cost uh, for the small clinically irrelevant benefit that you get from it is wildly unfavorable. Um, and I think that most people in practice uh, mismanage knee osteoarthritis, and this has been echoed not just by me, but, but some of the recent publications in British Journal of Sports Medicine where they've talked about you know, uh, 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 
uh, evidence-based guidelines for managing musculoskeletal pain and, and, uh, and osteoarthritis, which echo a lot of the things that I presented in the pain, injury, and rehab kind of talk earlier today. For people who want references on this stuff, there's a paper by R-U-T-J-E-S is the author from 2012, Annals of Internal Medicine, and Jeb Savar in 2015, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. And so that's the extra effort that I put in to look this stuff up while Jordan was lecturing to give you guys some sources. I guess Smith. I almost wore the citation desperately needed shirt today, but um, here, there's your citations. I guess Smith was off for the study. Who's Smith? I don't know, but Ruches sounds like. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So right. would not do. Well, yeah, would not do. Well, would you do PRP? Nope. Would you do cortisone injections? So cortisone injections, I generally don't recommend. Sure. But to the extent that they have evidence, it probably uh, beats out uh, hyaluronic acid injections. 100%. But I still don't tend to have people, you know. I, I was trained to perform them, and every time I performed them, I was like, I hate yeah, that just, I'm doing this right now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, what I would do is just like bring in a big needle and then like drape, or ra like effectively drape, and then be like, yeah, no, I just anesthetized you very well. You didn't even yeah, feel yeah. it go in. <laughs> yeah, just get that placebo. Okay, with programming, nutrition or training, is there any evidence that shows that weekly follow-up is more advantageous than daily, twice per month, et cetera? Do you see some clients require more frequent touch points based on their experience levels, i.e. new clients needing more contact than a client of four years, for example? The data on this is actually interesting. So there's a lot of data that's been emerging due to uh, online like apps, uh, for instance, and different uh, online um, sort of health services, uh, stuff like uh, particularly Lark and um, a few other uh, uh, entities. So effectively, the more touch points that you have with individuals engaged in weight loss, for instance, the more professional touch points, the better they do. It's not perfectly linear, but that's just a general rule. And I don't know if I've seen enough data to have a good opinion on like the granularity of that. Like one session, one time per week versus twice per week versus three times per week versus once every six, you know, six days or twelve days. Uh, rather, I do know that most of the recommendations suggest at least weekly follow-up, at least weekly follow-up for people actively engaged in behavioral change. So the way that I've seen this work practically in my own sort of uh, practice with individuals who I'm following up with is that initially the weekly follow-up turns into usually twice weekly because it's usually here's my check-in, here's what's been going on, then I provide feedback and ask additional questions and they give me another answer and then I give them an email. So it's usually twice per week, maybe even three times per week initially and then that just goes down and down and down and down until it's just once per week where people, not it's not that they don't have questions anymore but they 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 don't need as much acute management. Their questions are more like theoreticals or philosophical or they're like coaching and they're like, well, what should I do in this situation, right? It's, it's not a personal question about how they, um, uh, you know, something they should do that week. So that's been my experience. And I, again, I know the data suggests from this professional effect sort of standpoint, like uh, people who have high, more touch points on average do better than those who have less touch points. And as soon as the study ends, for instance, for a weight loss deal, when people go from seeing people either once a month or once every once a week or once every two weeks to seeing nobody, they do worse. The weight regain uh, uh, rate is very, very high post uh, uh, the study ending. Do you have any other, anything else? I don't think so. No? Yeah, I mean, frequency tends to go down a bit over time from the rank yeah. beginner. To, yeah, I think that's intuitive. The training thing is actually interesting because I have not seen any data on like physical activity compliance with either online sort of health services or like frequency uh, the frequency of follow-ups. Uh, I'm sure that something's out there. I just haven't seen it yet. 
Um, as far as with my own sort of practice, again, like it starts out hot and heavy at the beginning and then just gets, gets more spread out at the end. Yeah, okay. Knowing what we know about the biopsychosocial model. Hey, did Daniel do the rap about the biopsychosocial model to you? Yes, it was excellent. It was excellent. It was the best one he's ever done. We're gonna put that. He posted it on his uh, page. Here. We'll share it, we'll share <laughs> it. Yeah. I'm gonna get you focused up, bro. I'm gonna get you crispy. Another one. All right, man. Yeah. yeah. Okay, pain hat. Tweaks and cracking. Pops and stabbing. Your back, you grab. Oh, God. What do we do with this occurrence? Well, hell. Step one is reassurance. Hold up. Step two is not to coddle, but to evaluate them and educate them on a biopsychosocial model. Oh. What's your thoughts and fears of what went down? That. Stand up from the ground and go walk around. Work. But coach, I heard a sound. Deep breaths and calm down. You're gonna be okay. Let's knock the load down. Step three is load management. Yes, sir. Cut the weight down. Step four, range of motion. Can you get down? Stop. Tempo and slow down. Hold up. Volume, cut it down. Oh, God. You're not a machine. It's gonna break down. Yeah. You're a highly adaptable organism. I hope you like the breakdown. Dang. <laughs> Knowing what we know about the biopsychosocial model, at what point does a certain movement pose an injury risk, and when should that person seek intervention from a qualified professional? So I think there's two questions. Let's answer the first question first. Okay. All right. Knowing what you know, bro. What I think I know. About the well, knowing what you know, you. Not very much. Yes, right, epistemology. <laughs> knowing what you think you know about the biopsychosocial model, at what point does a certain movement pose an injury risk? I think that a way to succinctly uh, kind of summarize the, 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 the point there is that certain movement poses an injury risk at the point when uh, you, are, you, have been, you are not adequately prepared for that movement. True. That's the way I would summarize it, right? So people like to dichotomize good movement and bad movement as if there's some universally like correct way to move or a universally incorrect or dangerous way to move. Again, this is stuff we see that gets shared to us. We get tagged in this stuff all the time. Somebody's like, oh, if you just, you know, like lift your arm like this, that's like, you know, red X for bad for your shoulder or something like that. We don't agree that there are inherently harmful movements. We think the, the body is very robust, resilient, can execute a wide variety of movements, can tolerate and adapt to a wide variety of movements. However, when, uh, a, when somebody undertakes some sort of a movement that they are unadapted to handle, they're not adequately prepared to handle, um, that's when there is likely some increase in risk. And that may be, you know, in the sporting world, like field sports, where you're competing with other people. And there's a lot of, you know, that's where a lot of ACL injuries happen, for example, planting and twisting and dodging around other people, where the environment is much less predictable. And it's kind of, to an extent, hard to prepare for something like that outside of general strength training and the other evidence-based ways we have to reduce injury risk in field sports. And in the gym, you know, we don't tend to be very, very perfectionist with our movements. We like to promote this same sense of resilience, but we like to say that, hey, you know, whatever movement style you end up kind of gravitating towards, if you train that for a very long time, you know, that's fine. That's why we see people who round back deadlift 900 pounds without evidence of issues because they've been round back deadlifting since they were very beginning probably in the gym. Just, probably so, just added five pounds. Well, that's oftentimes, you know, the way it goes. So they've adapted to that movement strategy and, and, uh, and that's probably the way that I would summarize the ideas about like movement and injury risk. Yeah. There aren't really concrete 
you know, high risk particular movements that I can point to, particularly in the gym context. Of course, in field sports, again, certain types of planting and twisting and stuff like that are going to pose you to certain risk, which we may be able to reduce with certain interventions. But for our populations training in the gym, you know, you can move a whole bunch of ways and be fine. It's just the loading, the progression, the adaptation that matters. You wouldn't suggest that people take a lateral blow to the knee with the helmet? I would not suggest that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree that I, I don't think there are any, like, unique exercises that we can perform in he, in the gym uh, that are uniquely, like ha have a unique injury potential. Unless you're unprepared to perform those exercises, not from like a skill standpoint, but main from, mainly from like a workload tolerance Loading standpoint. standpoint. Sure. So uh, that being said, I, I don't think that, again, performing any exercise in particular is necessarily dangerous unless you do too much of it compared to your previous workload. You know, or it's too heavy. Or it's too heavy. Which, yeah. So the interesting thing is, like, people say you should never do an upright row because you'll saw your supraspinatus tendon in half. Yeah. And it's and like, I mean, there are lists of these things behind the neck presses that are demonized. Never do squat. Are, yeah. It's like you've just tried to harm people. Yeah. You've just posted an article that's hurting people, which is ironic because you're, you wrote the article to try to help people, but what you're doing is hurting people by putting this negative expectation, this hypervigilance, this exercise avoidance in their head. God forbid somebody reads this upright robe and ever has to lift like groceries up like this and they're like, oh no, my supraspinatus tendon. Oh gosh, I need an MRI immediately and some hyaluronic acid stat. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think that you summarized it perfectly. I just, I wouldn't, I don't suggest that any exercise is uh, injurious, just like any particular technique during an exercise is particularly injurious unless it violates that acute on chronic workload or somebody else like hit you and there's uncontrolled sure. ballistic movement. Sure, unpredictable stuff, traumatic <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, all this stuff goes out the window. But in a controlled training environment, yeah, you can adapt to do all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, if you look in other sports too, right? You look at gymnasts, you know, you look at various other types of sports, like people can do all kinds of crazy, amazing stuff with their bodies, yep. right? When it's properly dosed, progressed, and you know, adapted to over time. And again, so, the, the injury rate for resistance training at large is- Is very, lower than a lot of those other things. <laughs> yeah, so like bodybuilding, for instance, has the lowest injury rate of any resistance training modality. Powerlifting is right after that, which again, if you look at that specific data, you're looking at less than two injuries per thousand participation hours. Now, if you look at just strongman or highland games on their own, you're looking at like five and a half injuries per thousand participation hours, which may owe themselves to the movements not being able to be scaled quite as linearly, right? So like you go to a strongman, if you're competing strongman, right, then you have to like subject yourself to a lot of exercises that you might not be able to train at your particular gym just because you lack the implements mm -hmm. or the specific things. So it's all new at the, at the, uh, at the competition, which is a bad deal. Do you yeah. want to comment on the last part? Like when I you think we've answered that one before. You don't want to the professional deal? We've answered that one before. Okay. <laughs> if you're concerned, you can seek, you know, I mean, we can't tell you to not go see somebody for something. So yeah. if you're concerned, what you, you can go get some help. What do you not recommend but, that somebody see yeah, the doctor? But we can't guarantee whether this person who you're seeing knows what they're doing. Yeah. So it's kind of an unfortunate thing. So. That's why I don't really have much to say on that. Yeah, if you're worried, I would recommend seeing a professional. If you were asking for a particular professional to see, I think Derek and Mike. Yeah, see our guys. Yeah, I would, I would recommend that. If, you're, if it's a musculoskeletal injury from resistance training, those guys, I don't know if people are doing a better job than they are. So mm -hmm. anyway, okay. 
Moving on, what happens if you replace saturated fatty acids with proteins instead of carbs or other types of fats? Yeah, so I talked about this in the lipid lecture where we talked about with saturated fatty acid intake, the role of replacing it with other types of nutrients, whether that be other types of fatty acids, unsaturated types, polyunsaturated fats where we have randomized controlled trial level evidence that that type of replacement reduces cardiovascular risk, monounsaturated fatty acids where we have uh, uh, evidence suggesting that it, that it reduces cardiovascular risk, although not super, super high quality randomized controlled trial evidence, and uh, with carbohydrates, where we said that replacing it with refined carbohydrates either has no effect or increases cardiovascular risk, and replacing it with more complex or whole grain carbohydrates tends to decrease cardiovascular risk. Uh, when replacing saturated fatty acid uh, intake ca calories from that type of intake with dietary protein, there is also no randomized controlled trial evidence on that with respect to cardiovascular risk, death, things like that. However, there is evidence that with respect to certain cardiovascular risk factors that it generates an improvement in those things. I think it is likely that you would get an improvement from something like that, but I don't have clear like RCT evidence to point to on that. Uh, a good reference to, get, to look at for all of the stuff that I just said, if that was like a blur, is this paper by Flock, F-L-O-C-K, and colleagues in 2014, uh, titled uh, Macronutrient Replacement Options for Saturated Fat Effects on Cardiovascular Health. Yeah. And the way I like to think about that is if you're trying to reduce saturated fat intake, is as long as you're not replacing it with uh, either trans sugar. fat or sugar, like, yeah, trans fats would not you're probably either. okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, but if you need to lose weight, like, I just wouldn't replace them. You just go into a calorie deficit. Mm -hmm. Just lose some weight. <laughs> okay. In a classroom situation where a professor, either teaching a regular exercise science or health course or a professional medical class, when they teach information that's related to pain or injury that is not supported by evidence and is potentially harmful to the people listening who don't know any better, <laughs> is there a place as a student to talk to the professor about this? If so, how should it be done? <laughs> Uh, you want to you start? Yeah, one of our uh, one of our clients and PT students who was in our Facebook group posted about this recently, and he was like losing his mind because he tried this and got a massive backfire effect. Uh, so it may or may not be worth your time. Um, it's important to get if that you have a sense of the extent to which this professor who is in a position of authority over you, who is a lowly student who doesn't know anything, um, from their perspective, um, how receptive they may be to some sort of evidence. If you think they may be, then the way I would do it is just, hey, have you seen this evidence? What do you think of this? Now, they may well say, uh, I don't like it for whatever confirmation bias reason that, I, that leads me to reject evidence that I don't like. Um, if that's the case, then just move on with your life. Uh, if they say, you know, that's interesting and look more into it and you, it spurs some discussion, then that's a huge win. But I think that you cannot put too much emotional investment into this thing. You may be able to, you know, introduce them to something that they've never heard of or read before, which would be impressive if you manage to pull that off. I think it's unlikely if you're, say, like a first-year, you know, post-grad student or yeah. something and you have a PhD that you're presenting this stuff to. Um, just recognize that, yes, the information that you may be receiving is, 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 is incorrect or harmful, and you may be seeing this as like the end of the world because all of your classmates are taking this information and they're going to go out and spread this harmful information. And while probably true, the world is a very large place. So, you know, if you're unable to impact that person, you cannot, you know, hang your personal self-worth on your ability to influence this and just move on with your life and try to influence those who are more open 
to this stuff. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that I've kind of uh, had to learn over time was just to detach myself emotionally from some of this stuff because some people just you're not going to get through to and the world's going to keep on turning. Austin actually has no feelings. Yeah, it's a weird deal. Little known fact. 17 years. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah which is... While wild. we have people claiming that they're, you know, ahead of the evidence, especially in the rehab world, they say they're practicing ahead of the evidence. They're just waiting for all the literature on their favorite modality to catch up. Meanwhile, the evidence suggests that they are, in fact, 17 years behind yes, correct. what the evidence would suggest. You know, the interesting thing was this. So, like, in our medical education, like, our neuroanatomy professor, Dr. Arevich... Shout out to PFA. You won't watch this, but maybe he did. And he made it this far, and he's still watching. <laughs> um, he, uh, he actually taught us a lot of this pain science stuff. Like, it was there. Now, every, every presentation that he ever did to us was, like, hundreds of slides. And so you're just like, okay. okay. And this is in medical school where you're in other classes that yeah, are also yeah. hundreds of slides. Yeah, and you're like, what the f Okay. But he, it was all there, right? And the interesting thing was, like, so you would expect as somebody who's now up on pain science because it's been communicated to you in a way that's accessible, digestible, and something you understand, you're like, well, you guys are probably eating it up, weren't you? No, we were stupid. We couldn't, it wasn't available. We didn't have a mental model to like, for that to work within everything else that we knew. And even then, amongst other professors, they weren't necessarily saying that either. So it's not like we were getting beat over the head with this every single time. We just missed it. There was just too much information and we were unable to process it in the way that hopefully you guys have now processed it after it was presented here this weekend. Yeah. This stuff was told to us in med school and it just Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. we were too busy trying to memorize everything else we had to memorize. Yeah. But you went back and saw him. Can you imagine if you were like told him all this pain science stuff? He goes, yeah, so I just got PRP injections from my belly. You'd be like, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> okay, cool. Last, uh, last few questions. Yep. Yeah. Uh, to clarify, is there no additional benefit to higher repetitions as recommended in the STAR rehab protocol? Uh, is it the load reduction that is helpful to the rehab process, not the higher reps and metabolic fatigue? Uh, is the movement in and of itself and load reduction the key factor in reducing healing time? Question mark? I really had to like go up. I it was like stupid. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, working on a little novel. <laughs> <laughs> a little uh, beginning, middle, and end. Hmm? Are you? Uh, yeah. No, no, no. You deserve a break. Okay. Uh, that's my best doing. Uh, <laughs> so this question has a number of assumptions that I think I would just get out of the way. So the STAR rehab protocol, uh, just for you guys who don't know, is that if you, whatever movement you injured yourself on, let's say that you hurt your hamstring, right? This is for a muscle belly, supposed to be for a muscle belly tear. You tore a hamstring during the squat. Whatever, the first person's ever done that. No, it's, let's say that happened. Then you would use the squat and do five sets of 20 the next day at a very light weight, maybe the empty bar. And then you would add 10 pounds and continue to do that until it got heavy enough where you had to do sets of 10. And you're doing five sets of 10. You're doing nothing else besides squatting on a daily basis to reduce scar tissue, apparently to encourage blood flow to the area. I know, like, look, okay. all these things are supposed to be happening. Few things. The STAR rehab protocol is not evidence-based, meaning that for muscle belly tears, uh, resistance training in that fashion has not been shown to like in, in reduce uh, time to recovery. That being said, being sedentary has been shown to reduce or to, to incur, increase the time it takes you to come back to your uh, previous form. So 
Yes, we would encourage activity, but we would not necessarily recommend the STAR rehab protocol. So if you're asking like, should you do the STAR rehab protocol full stop? Uh, no, I wouldn't do it for anything. I would not, rec that's not, wouldn't be my recommended rehab protocol. The second part of this is asking, are, is there a benefit to doing higher repetitions during times of, if you have an injury? And I think that is a reasonable sort of program modification because it reduces the load that you're gonna be working with. You have less expectations about how much weight you can handle, so you're not gonna take it up to RPE 11. You're not gonna turn your amp up to 11. You're gonna be like, I have to do sets of 15. That sounds terrible. I'm gonna to go to a more moderate load. And so in fact, if you look at our knee rehab template, our low, beat, low back rehab template, all of these things start at higher repetitions um, and then work their way back to normal training. Okay, also helps improve like sort of uh, strength, uh, force production endurance, like that sort of strength endurance sort of deal also gives you a little bit extra volume to build your sort of tolerance to training back up before you return to your normal training. So high repetitions can be very useful. Okay, but that being said, it doesn't like shorten the window to recovery of performance. Um, the last thing I would say on this, the load reduction is certainly a part of being able to participate in activity when you have an injury. Well, particularly in this, in the theoretical context where this is supposedly applicable, is if you have a muscle tear and for some reason you decided to not reduce the load. Yeah, right, <laughs> if you could, right, sure. That would not be a particularly intelligent thing to do, right? Yeah. You almost have no choice but to lower the load. And if you want to get a training stimulus from it, then yeah, reps are probably going to go up. Yeah, the way I think this happened is like Star was asked by somebody to be like, hey, what should I do if I have a torn hamstring? And he's like, oh, I'm going to make this up, just do this. And they'd be like, well, that's a star rehab protocol. And Bill Starr was a great lifter, which is true. Sure. Great lifter. But I wouldn't recommend that for any rehab of anything, even a muscle belly tear. What would I recommend? Well, it depends on the muscle belly tear. I don't think I would recommend five sets of 20. That's 100 reps. It's 100 reps. It's a lot. Um, you know, it would probably be set in the 10 to 15 range of exercises that you can tolerate that, you know, uh, work uh, full range of motion yeah. and potentially the injured tissue. Now, on the other hand, if you can't work that injured area because it's just too sensitive, too painful, whatever, then I would do other exercises that don't work that area yet allows you to continue being physically active. I know, this is crazy stuff. Well, it's kind of like when I presented like the, the approach to injury and I was talking about like the load increment and I said like a 5 to 10% load increment, for example, is our usual approach, particularly early on in the rehab phase and I added the caveat that this is made up Yep. and it's not evidence-based, yep. and I fully admit that, and that's just our general recommendation. I mean, this is the same thing. This rehab protocol is also just made up, and certain people have had good experiences with it, which is fine. Um, I would also probably take a different approach to rehabilitating uh, these sorts of injuries, but fortunately, we don't see these sorts of injuries all that often. Yeah, um, but it'd be Muscle definitely belly be, tears. Yeah, they just don't happen all that often, so. What would you do if you ruptured your biceps tendon? Uh, I would get surgery. Oh really? Because you're that you're that concerned about the aesthetics. I knew that you were a bodybuilder at heart. Yeah, as you can tell by my you know enormous biceps. Massive guns. So, yeah, exactly. The YouTube's gonna have a field day with that one. Right. Yeah. All right. What's the intensity breakpoint between the 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity activity per week versus the 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity activity per week with regards to uh, the physical activity guidelines for adults? 
Uh, so you look this up, you can go ahead and do well, it. Well, I just wanted to give specific answers. So in that literature, in these specific guidelines, they define moderate intensity activity as something that is between three to six METs. Jordan talked about METs in his lecture, referring to metabolic equivalents. It has to do with a metric of kind of energy expenditure and examples of activities that fall in that three to six MET range would be something like walking somewhere at least three miles per hour. Uh, light cycling would be in that three to six MET range versus vigorous in this literature, greater than six METs uh, of activity would be something like running. And so the idea is that from the physical activity guidelines uh, from 2018, they suggest that you can do either or or a combination of the two in order to achieve a target of 500 to 1,000 MET minutes uh, in a given week. And a MET minute, you would basically take how many METs you're expending in a given activity times how many minutes you're doing it. So if you do a five MET activity for 30 minutes, you just multiply the two, and that gives you a measure of how many MET minutes you expended. You want to get a total of 500 to 1,000 MET minutes. Now, most people out there, and we certainly don't expect you guys are going to be tracking this and calculating your MET minutes per week, right? They have to give us something specific to counsel people on. So moderate activity, three to six MET range, vigorous, greater than six, they're MET you know, metabolic equivalent charts that can give you ideas of how vigorous of activity we're talking about here. So either or or a combination to hit that target is the goal. Yep. The way I actually do this like practically is if for moderate intensity stuff it's RPE six or lower, which is more boring than hard. You can talk in complete sentences. You can't sing though. It's like a little harder than singing. And then for high intensity stuff, you cannot talk in complete sentences, just short stanzas, kind of this respiratory RPE, if you will. Respiratory RP. What if I do a thousand Mets in one minute? It's a one-arm deadlift. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. All right. Yeah. Last question. Okay. Do you have any suggestions on how to collaborate between doctors and trainers? I guess it depends on like who you are. Uh, and actually, I think if you're a doctor, it's going to be easier to collaborate with a trainer. Yes. Like, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. So like if you're a doctor and you walk into a, a gym, like a black iron gym or somebody where you have a great coach and you say, hey, I am a primary care physician or I'm an internist or whatever and I have a lot of patients I'd like to refer to you or I'd like to collaborate with you so that we could, you know, help reduce all these diseases of Western civilization. And the guy's like, uh, like, I don't know what you just said, but I'm into squats. And you're like, cool, sweet. <laughs> Not that that coach that, you, no, Bill wouldn't say that. Bill is Bill back there like, that. <laughs> Bill wouldn't say that. So I think it's much easier for the doctor to actually take the initiative on this one. Um, I probably wouldn't necessarily recommend that a trainer try to take this on their own accord and be like, reach out to a bunch of doctors. Because I, I think that's, yeah, well, so the deal is, because I think that's almost a, uh, a waste of resources. What I would rather have them do is hook up with physical therapists and other sort of uh, care providers like that so that you can transition people from. Work with people who are being discharged from rehab. Correct, exactly. And at that point, then the just trickle up effect, yeah, right? Sure. Yeah, that's what I think has a, a higher success rate. I mean, when I was uh, coaching full time, like that's that was my that's what I ended up doing with PTs and chiropractors um, in the area, and then and I ended up getting hooked up with a, a few internists who also wanted to refer me people. But I all, already had this sort of cachet where I was like, oh yeah, I'm working with Doctor So and So and his patients or her patients, and I kind of had that already. The other thing is, if you're a trainer, 
this is the interesting deal. Like the ACSM uh, American College of Sports Medicine, that certification, the health and fitness specialist, carries so much weight in the medical community for no reason. The certification is not great. It's not great. But they're like, ooh, you're ACSM certified. I've heard of them. They did the sports medicine fellowship. They do all these other guidelines. Like, that's great. And you're like, cool, it's the cheapest main certification that I can get. So thanks for recognizing. So I think that's useful. As far as how to sort of do this collaboration, though, the way that I envision this, the way that I envision this in the future is that people, like trainers and doctors, are working together seamlessly. Meaning that doctors like, yeah, I have this patient in my primary care practice, and I'm sending them to you for therapeutic exercise. Well, and therapeutic I'm sending them to you so that you can get them up to meeting current Correct. exercise guidelines. Therapeutic that exercise, clinically relevant yes, therapeutic exactly. exercise. Right, needs and, to be more, a little more specific. And also engaging in nutritional changes um, that I have recommended, and now you have more time to counsel them. Sure. And I think doing that instead of like the diabetic education program, for instance, for, I, I would rather have people do that. Yeah. That's it. Thank you guys.